Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. They say you can't judge a book by its cover. At the Folio Society, we don't agree. Our beautiful books are all hardback and come with a slipcase, illustrations, and gorgeous covers. At the Folio Society, we've something for everyone. From Pride and Prejudice to Dune, Charles Darwin to A Game of Thrones. If you love books, you'll love Folio, the perfect gift. Order now at foliosociety.com and get $10 off when you use the promo code PODCAST. Conditions apply. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 410. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. What a show, man. What a show. Tell you what's coming in today's show. First up is we have an interview with Jonathan McDowell, and it's about <laughs> the end of the world. Something's flying towards the earth, and, well, it might not make that much of a difference, but it's certainly something to look out for. Then we have the main fiction, which is... The Chronology Protection Case by Paul Levison. Then right at the end, we have Looking Back at Genre History with our very own Amy H. Sturgis. That's all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Now, don't forget, this show is sponsored by Octagon Technology. 20 years in the IT industry, helping you with your little problems in the computer world. And I'm sure I've got so many. Oh, but yes, a big thank you to Clive and Diane, Octagon Technology. There's links on and there's even a call number now if you want to do a little help. Right then. So before we get into the interview with Jonathan, let me just say Starship's over our assistant editor Jeremy there is putting a call out for an assistant so he can kind of help with his all the stories because we are going to open up the stories again and invite people to kind of submit stories to Starship Sova and we kind of we did that a couple of months ago and it was a great reaction we're getting some great stories out there and but like you say it's it's quite a it's quite a (laughs) A task to read them. And yeah, bless yeah, bless your souls out there. There is some naff stuff as well. You know what I mean? And it's just wading through it. I'll put a link on to Jeremy's site. If you come over to Starship Sova, there's a link on there. And Jeremy gives a great description of what's needed. Do you know what I mean? And, and, and lays it out. Do you know what I mean? It's, there's some work there. Do you know what I mean? But like you say, you'll get to kind of, if you read the, the post by Jeremy, you know, it you do end up emailing kind of all your kind of heroes, do you know what I mean? And, you know, whoever you kind of admire in the world. You know, I just told Jeremy there this morning before we actually did chatting on with Bruce Sterling, do you know what I mean? And it's it's just quite a, you know, it, it does open doors. And, it, it, hey, listen, if it kind of helps you in your 
your day job as well. That's great. So come over. There's a link on top of the, on this today's post, 410. I've put a little link on. So a call for assistant and slush reader. Click on that. I'll take you over to Jeremy's. Then you can read whatever involved. Scare off. And then you can or decide to, to come and help with. And that would be fantastic. So let's get into the main show. And like I say, I've got a... An interview with Dr. Jonathan McDowell, who is an astrophysicist at the kind of Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in Cambridge, the USA. And there's been lots of talk about a certain object flying towards Earth and, you know, flying towards Earth and crashing into Earth. And I wanted to have a little chat with Jonathan. Jonathan, tell us then, what is WT1190F? Because you take those numbers out and you're left with WTF, you know, and there's been a lot of talk about this. You know, what is it? Right. Well, and we wish we knew. Um, what we know is that it's a tiny dot, that, uh, about a 20th magnitude star-looking object that's showing up on the uh, images taken by the folks who are searching for near-Earth asteroids. But... It's really, uh, we think it's not a near-Earth asteroid because when you plot its track, it's sort of bobbing up and down uh, as, as with the solar radiation pressure. It seems to be hollow and really small, like only a meter or two across. And so that makes us think uh, that it's actually an old piece of space junk out beyond the moon. Right. I mean, just out of curiosity, surely we must have a telescope that we can just kind of zoom in on that and zoom in pretty pretty good for it? Not really. Uh, try, trying to image something a metre across uh, uh, at the distance of the moon is is not so trivial. Uh, and, you know, we, we, we track all of this space junk, right, but most of it is really close to the Earth. There's really very little stuff out there at the distance of the moon, and uh, and really we don't have uh, the the capability to to get you know to actually get a picture of it where you can see details. I wish we did. Um, and, and so there's really and the other thing that happens is if you have a, a satellite that's in orbit, sort of at the distance of the moon, it's moving at a particular kind of speed that's very similar to the apparent speed of an asteroid going around uh, the sun near to the Earth. And so it's easy to confuse the two, which is why these asteroid folks are now starting to pick up uh, these bits of lost space junk in deep Earth orbit. Why is this one then? You know, why is this one so different? It is different. It's unusual compared to most of the other ones floating around there. What's different about this? Right. Well, there aren't that many of uh, of the distant ones, and, and we pick up, you know, one every couple of years. What's really unusual about this one is that it's just begun its last orbit of the Earth. The gravity of the sun and the moon have tugged it around in such a way uh, that, it, that its next orbit goes underneath the surface of the Earth, which is not going to be a happy day for it. Uh, it's going to come screaming in on the morning of uh, November 13th, at 40,000 kilometers an hour uh, over the Indian Ocean, uh, and the Indian Ocean is going to win the argument. It's, 
I mean, it seems as has it caught what off guard in any way? Because it it seems like you know all of a sudden you know just for me from the kind of you know the the non professional there just the kind of keen on kind of looking for this kind of stuff you know I'm interested in it. But it seems all of a sudden in the news this WT you know one one seems to be in the news yeah, all yeah. the way, and it seems to be like oops 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 we better sort this one out. Right, well, we've never seen an artificial object re-entering, falling down from this high. Normally, when space junk re-enters, it's in a low orbit around the Earth. And uh, it's sort of, you know, skimming the Earth's atmosphere for a few days, and eventually it slows down and falls in and burns up. This one's falling down from the distance of the moon, coming in really fast at a steep angle. Um, We've never seen that before. Uh, And the reason we've never seen it before is that, our telescopes have only recently gotten good enough to really start picking up these faint, tiny things uh, so far away. And so probably this has happened before, and we just haven't spotted it. Um, but uh, And so it's sort of interesting for two reasons uh, that, that people are excited about it. One is just the space junk folks are interested because we don't really understand what happens to an object when it hits the atmosphere that hard. Uh, we want to we understand better how, uh, how space junk interacts with the atmosphere. We also want to understand better what the population is of, of space junk objects that far out, which we, we still don't have a good idea. Um, but probably more importantly, the asteroid folks are into this object. Because normally they don't care about the space junk. And, and, and what happens is uh, the minor planet center, who is sort of air traffic control for the solar system, they keep track of all the asteroids. And occasionally they find something they thought was an asteroid. And, and then they go, oh, whoops, no, it maneuvered. That's not an asteroid. It's a spaceship. And, uh, and they're not interested in that, so they give it to me. But this one, they are interested in because being able to pick something up that far out Follow it into impact is a brilliant dress rehearsal for what would happen when an asteroid actually hit the Earth. And, you know, at this point, if we get a really big asteroid coming in to hit the Earth, like a, like a, a dinosaur killer one, well, we're toast, so there's not really much you can rehearse about that. But if you, what's more likely is that you get a smaller asteroid coming in that would do some serious damage. Uh, but but wouldn't be sort of end of the world, and and you want to be ready for that, and uh, you want to be able to predict exactly where it's going to hit, and this is really one of our first rehearsals for doing something like that. So I think that's why uh, uh, people are excited about it. When was it first spotted then? Well, it was spotted a few weeks ago, but then they went back in the old records. Uh, and the old digital archives, and they found uh, previous observations of it all the way back to 2012. Right, right. Uh, and, and and that's great because that then let us figure out its past orbit a bit. Uh, and, um, and so we know that it uh, made some flybys of the moon in around 2012, and we can't work it back any further than that because uh, when it goes near the moon, the, the orbit changes in... Um, not not exactly unpredictable ways, but it's hard it's hard to uh, calculate accurately where it was before that. So that's why we don't know which mission it's from. 
Um, but, but yeah, well, this is one of the things astronomers do a lot, is, is we see something, we discover something, but then we have all these archives, and once we've got an idea of its path, we can sort of, you know, work that path back and figure out where it would have been a year ago, and then go, well, was anyone looking in that direction a year ago? Maybe we spotted it and didn't realize it. Um, and that's a technique that we used, uh, you know, um, here at Harvard, actually, back at... Uh, back in the 30s when, when Pluto was first found. Uh, you know, they found it in the 1930s. The way they figured out their orbit is, is that they found old photographic plates that had Pluto on it from the 1890s, and they were able to work back the orbit. So um, uh, so, so we, we, we'd given it another, it has another name like UW something from 2012, and we went, oh, okay, this object's the same as that object. It just had a lunar flyby in between, and so we'd lost it. Um, and and so uh, you know, it, there's a lot of painstaking work that has to be done to like a jigsaw puzzle to piece together the different observations you make until you go, oh yeah, we know the story of this object. Um, so so uh, it's it's uh, it's just been a you know a, a um, in the past you know few days people have really been uh, hitting on this object trying to get more observations of it, trying to pin down exactly when it's going to come down. Uh, and uh, and all of the various space tracking folks that study re-entries are gearing up to, to watch this thing coming in. Um, you, you said there, you know, the Indian Ocean's going to win out in the end. And are you pretty sure where it's going to land? Because I would have thought it would have just been a bit of a kind of, you know, not a guessing game, but surely, you know, you've got, say, the atmosphere is going to kind of knock it different ways and that. Why? How do you know, you know, within a certain kind of degree, where it's going to land precisely? Yeah, I, I was actually really surprised about this when I first heard about it. And uh, But it actually makes sense. Normally, you're absolutely right. Normally, when space junk comes in, because it's coming in uh, in a more sort of circular orbit that slowly gets shrinking and shrinking until it... Uh, gets so deep in the atmosphere that it starts melting. Uh, the, you know, go, it's go, these things are going at 18,000 miles an hour. They're, uh, in a few minutes, they've, they've gone hundreds of miles. Uh, and so a tiny error in when it's going to come down translates to the other side of the world. Uh, and so we normally, when space is coming in, we're normally saying, yeah, sorry, we've, uh, it's going to hit sometime tomorrow, somewhere between, you know, 50 degrees north and 50 degrees south or something like that. And But but what's different about this one is because it's coming in from this high altitude, this very elliptical orbit, it's screaming in almost, not quite vertically, but it's actually going to hit the atmosphere at a 20 degree angle when it comes in. But, uh, but from so high and so fast, that it's really not going to notice the atmosphere until the last few seconds of its life. It's, it's, it's hundreds of miles high right up until the last 30 seconds, right? And then it's just screaming on in uh, um, at 11 kilometers a second. Uh, and so the atmosphere isn't going to have time to mess it up. Uh, I mean, it's going to, in terms of the trajectory or where it's going to come in, it's, it's, it's once it hits the atmosphere, you're going to have very rapid descent, but also very rapid heating. Uh, and, you know, even the upper atmosphere is pretty thin. But when you're going at, at you know, 25,000 miles an hour, even a very thin wind 
is, is that uh, like sticking your head out of the car, you know, uh, hundreds of miles an hour, um, it's, it's really going to do a number on you. And so the, the, the metal in the object will heat up and most of it will melt. And you'll see a very spectacular meteor. And I'm hoping that someone will be out there, even though it's the middle of the day in the Indian Ocean, uh, it'll be um, uh, uh, enough, and I think I might be saying that, three plus, yeah. Um, uh, it, it'll be uh, uh, so bright as it releases all that energy uh, of the, you know, the chemical binding energy of the rocket in, in a small amount of time. Uh, you should get a pretty nice flash. Uh, and then the atoms of that will be just, you know, dispersed in the atmosphere. But maybe sometimes what we get is um, the denser parts of the rocket. Like if there's a rocket engine with a lot of dense metal in it, pieces of that might not have time to melt because it's going through the atmosphere so quickly and might actually survive to hit the ocean. I was going to ask you that. I mean, it is going to kind of disintegrate. You know what I mean? Isn't this kind of chunk's not going to come down that much? So, is there still a possibility of danger? Are we talking like kind of tiny? By the time it gets through the atmosphere, tiny, tiny bits where it would hardly make a splash in the water. Well, no, I I think you could get lumps that are, you know, um, six inches across or something like that. and and so if I were on a fishing boat in that part of the Indian Ocean, uh, um, you know, even so, right, the chance it's going to hit you on the head is, is pretty small, right? It's a, uh, I, we think of this as a very accurately predicted reentry, but the, the, the area in which it might hit is a few hundred miles across at least. And, uh, and you're going to have a few lumps of metal falling over a few hundred mile area that has maybe a few boats going around in it. I, I think the chances of anyone getting hit uh, are, are pretty minuscule. Um, but uh, if it had been, you know, in a, in a populated area, uh, that might have been a little different. How much, Jonathan, how much junk, do we know how much junk's up there? You know, how, do we keep a record of it or...? We do, but but um, like I said, most of the junk in space uh, is fairly low. It, it, it's mostly in in uh, two places. It's in what we call low Earth orbit, which is only a few hundred miles up, and up near our geostationary orbit, which is twenty three thousand miles up. And then this WT eleven ninety F is is ten times further away than that. And uh, there's very little junk out there in these, these sort of distant parts of the Earth-Moon system. Um, uh, there's, there's, uh, and it's not well-tracked. So I know, I've kept a record of everything we know we've sent out there. And there's about 100 things that are sort of either floating out there or used to be floating out there and now orbiting the sun. Uh, and as opposed to the lower orbits where we have... Um, uh, there's about 17,000 things orbiting the Earth that we're tracking. Uh, and of those, you know, uh, 1,300 of them are active spacecraft, all the way from the 400-ton International Space Station down to the one-kilogram CubeSats that are, are uh, built by university students. And 
the, in addition to that 1,300 active ones, there's about 2,800 dead ones that used to be doing useful things, but that just you know failed. But they're still falling around the earth every 90 minutes or so. Uh, and then there's another 13,000 or so that's just chunk. Uh, and that ranges from big dead rocket stages that deliver the satellites to orbit down to tiny pieces of shrapnel from satellites or rockets that have blown up or disintegrated for various reasons. And, you know, you have these things that are maybe, you know, an inch or so across and a big deal. And, and there's, when you say, where's the nearest one to you, if you're an astronaut on the space station, say it's probably a few hundred miles away. And so you go, oh, that's not so bad. But it's traveling at 18,000 miles an hour. So if you were to take a time-lapse photo of all of this junk, these one-inch uh, um, pieces of shrapnel, uh, if you take a, a one-minute exposure, uh, you'd, they'd be an inch across and several hundred miles long. Uh, and suddenly space doesn't look so empty anymore. Um, so these things sweep out a lot of space uh, very quickly. Uh, and even a tiny piece of metal, if it if you're going at 18,000 miles an hour one way, and it's going at 18,000 miles an hour the other way, it's going to hurt. Uh, and so we, we do try and do things like have the, uh, we track if anything's coming close to the International Space Station in the next couple of days, and warn the astronauts to and fire the rocket engines on the space station to sort of dodge. And uh, so, so really, um, it, it's uh, it's an ecological problem. We're littering uh, Earth orbit. We're trying to do better than we did. There are a lot of changes that uh, uh, space agencies have made in terms of not leaving rocket stages with leftover fuel in them, where they can you know detonate later. Um, not chucking off the lens cap of your camera, but putting it on a hinge, all these sort of basic tidiness things, you know, that, that uh, are trying to reduce the amount of junk. But then you go get something like the satellite collision we had back in 2009, which suddenly generates thousands of new pieces of junk, and you're back where you started. So it's a difficult problem. I was going to say, I mean, it, it, it's only probably going to get worse as well. You know, I know that, you know, we, we try and we're best to kind of keep things clean up there, but... How is there mustn't even be a method to clean it up? You know what I mean? I'm, I'm sure that's just out of the question. You know, trying to clean this mess up. Um, it's not out of the question. We have to think about it, or we're going to lose the ability to go to space. Right? Uh, you know, worst case, you've got Earth surrounded by Saturn's rings and uh, made of uh, aluminium, and uh, any spaceship you you send up is going to be shredded. Um, so, so we've got to fix this. Uh, the measures people are taking to create less junk are having some effect. Um, the, uh, uh, but I think what we've realized we have to do, there's two, the smaller pieces of junk I'm actually not so worried about because they tend to be uh, not very dense. Uh, they're affected by the Earth's atmosphere quite a lot. And so every 11 years in the solar cycle, when the sun's atmosphere, comp uh, uh, the, the sun's solar wind pushes on the Earth's atmosphere, makes it denser. Uh, a 
a lot of the smaller junk from the lower orbits just falls out of the sky and melts and, and burns up. Uh, and so there's a natural cleansing mechanism, at least for the lower orbits. And uh, the worst thing, people have done studies and said, well, okay, actually the biggest problem are the smaller number of big dead satellites. Exactly because when one of the, if two of those collide, as they did in 2009, you get much more junk than, than any of the other scenarios. And so if you can stop those collisions, you can stop the chain reaction that's now kind of underway uh, of getting more and more junk. And, uh, and so I think what we're going to see is eventually a tax on satellite operators to fund a, uh, um, a fleet of tow trucks that go around space and, and, and remove the bigger pieces of junk from uh, accelerate them down into the South Pacific where we throw dead spacecraft uh, uh, a lot of the time. And uh, the and then, you know, once you cut down the number of big dead things, uh, you can um, uh, and then wait a decade or so for the smaller uh, pieces of junk to be cleaned out naturally, uh, we'll be in a better situation. But it's going to require some international cooperation, some regulation, uh, some kind of use tax on space uh, to clean things up. So I think it's, it's, uh, the situation is, as, as with all our other ecological problems, dire, but maybe not so dire that it's completely too late to do anything. John, you must have your hands full. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it seems like it's 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 only getting worse, and you you've just got to keep on your on your game and on your ball all the time with this. Uh, that's right. There's a there's an international group that uh, discusses the problems of space junk, the Interagency Debris Committee, and uh, so I think you know there's a lot more um, there's a lot more people paying attention to this. Uh, and there's a lot more sort of international discussion, and, and uh, uh, in, from most of the space agencies, you know, that yeah, okay, we're gonna we're gonna take this seriously. Um, we we want to make sure this doesn't get out of hand. So so I'm I'm actually optimistic. I think that uh, um, it's usual uh, trying to sort things out a bit later than you really should have done, but we'll we'll muddle through. That's um, it. Doesn't, doesn't surprise us, you know. We, we all seem to, as a as a kind of nation and as a world late to the party to kind of recognise <laughs> recognise what we're doing wrong. With Jonathan, listen, thank you so much for coming on. Just, again, just remind us when is it due to kind of come through the atmosphere? So it's going to come through the atmosphere in the morning of November the thirteenth. Uh, so it's slowly picking up speed now uh, as it falls towards the Earth. Uh, traveling quite slowly at the moment. It's going to be going at uh, 40,000 kilometers an hour by the time it comes in, uh, and about uh, 7.30 GMT on on uh, the, the 13th, uh, we should get this uh, brief flash of glory uh, as it goes out over the Indian Ocean. Marvellous, can't we? Jonathan, it's, it's been a blast to have you on, honestly. Giving us like, just a little bit of insight into this kind of, you know, we, we kind of... We're all abuzz with the kind of the Martian and the Martian film and all that. But a little bit of kind of reality check sometimes now and again doesn't do uh, any harm. And just to realise, you know, we're kind of, we're making a bit of a mess up there as well. 
you know, with kind of rubbish. It's it's nice to kind of enlighten you on that. John, thank you so much for coming on. Pleasure, Greg. There you go. Now, yes, yeah, so it's it's not that far away, and whether we anyone out there will, will get to see it or not is you know a different matter. But a big thank you to Jonathan for coming on the show and just lighting me up in you know all that's happening with this this asteroid or this little piece of kind of garbage, should I say, that's coming coming to Earth. You know, it's fascinating to be quite honest. And a big thank you to Jonathan. So next up is the main fiction, and it is by Paul Levison. The Chronology Protection Case, which was first published in Analog, and then it was reprinted actually in the Mammoth Book of Time Travel SF. How cool is that? Paul Levison, PH, is a professor of communication and media studies from Fordham University. His non-fiction books include The Soft Edge, 1997, Digital McLoon, 1999, and Real Space, 2003. His science fiction novels include The Silk Code, winner of the Locust Award for Best First Science Fiction Novel of 1999. The author's cut ebook, 2012, Borrowed Tales, 2001, The Consciousness Plague, 2002 and 2013. Must have updated it there. And like I say, Paul, I've seen Paul since we kind of started Starship so far. Do you know what I mean? He's been out there in the kind of, in the, social media world there and it's I think this is the first time we've ever had a Paul Everson story so it's it's, it's mark that one up on the calendar and it's a fantastic story man is it so we need a fantastic narrator we had Michael Narimore on last week and we've got him on again this week as well and what you know what I mean just sit back and listen to this kind of story and just kind of get lost in the world that Paul Everson has created so the Starship Sova is very proud to present The Chronology Protection Case by Paul Levinson Narrated by Michael Narrowmore Carl put the call through just as I was packing up for the day. She says she's some kind of physicist, he said, and although I rarely took calls from the public, I jumped on this one. Dr. D'Amato? she asked. Yes. I saw you on television last week, on that cable talk show. You said you had a passion for physics. Her voice had a breathy elegance. True, I said. Forensic science was my profession, but cutting-edge physics was my love. Too bad there wasn't a way to nab rapist murderers with spectral traces. And you're a physicist? I asked. Oh, yes, sorry, she said. I should introduce myself. I'm Lauren Goldring. Do you know my work? Um, the name did sound familiar. I ran through the Rolodex in my head, though these days my computer was becoming more reliable than my brain. Yes, I snapped my fingers. You had an article in Scientific American last month about some Hubble data. That's right she said, and I could hear her relax just a bit. Look, I'm calling you about my husband. He's disappeared. I haven't heard from him in two days. Oh, I said. Well, that's not really my department. I can connect you to- No, please, she said. It's not what you think. 
I'm sure his disappearance has something to do with his work. He's a physicist, too. I was in my car 40 minutes later on my way to her house, when I should have been home with pizza and the cat. No contest. A physicist in distress always wins. Her Bronxville address wasn't too far from mine in Yonkers. Dr. D'Amato? She opened the door. I nodded. Phil. Thank you so much for coming, she said, and ushered me in. Her eyes looked red, like she suffered from allergies or had been crying. But few people have allergies in March. The house had a quiet, appealing beauty, as did she. I know the usual expectation in these things, she said. He has another woman, we've been fighting. And I'm sure that most women whose vanished husbands have been having affairs are quick to profess their certainty that that's not what's going on in their cases. I smiled. Okay, I'm willing to start with the assumption that your case is different. Tell me how. Would you like a drink? Some wine? She walked over to a cabinet. Must have been turn of the century. Just ginger ale, if you have it, I said, leaning back into the plush Morris chair she'd shown me into. She returned with the ginger ale and some sort of sparkling water for herself. Well, as I told you on the phone, Ian and I are physicists. Is his last name Goldring like yours? Lauren nodded. And well, I'm sure this has something to do with his project. You two don't do the same work? I asked. No, she said. My area is the cosmos at large. Big Bang Theory, black holes in space, the big picture. Ian's was, is on the other end of the spectrum, literally. His area's quantum mechanics. She started to sob. It's okay, I said. I got up and put my hand on her shoulder. Quantum mechanics could be frustrating, I knew, but not that bad. No, she said. It isn't okay. Why am I using the past tense for Ian? You think some harm's come to him? I don't know. Her lips quivered. She did know, or thought she knew. And you feel this has something to do with his work with tiny particles? Was he exposed to dangerous radiation? No, she said. That's not it. He was working on something called quantum signaling. He always told me everything about his work, and I told him everything about mine. We had that kind of relationship. And then a few months ago... He suddenly got silent. At first, I thought maybe he was having an affair. And the thought popped into my head. If I had a woman with your class, an affair with someone else would be the last thing on my mind. But then I realized it was deeper than that. It was something, something that frightened him in his work. Something that I think he wanted to shield me from. I'm pretty much of an amiable amateur when it comes to quantum mechanics, I said. But I know something about it. Suppose you tell me all you know about Ian's work and why it could be dangerous. What I in fact fully grasped about quantum mechanics, I could write on a postcard to my sister in Boston and it would likely fit. It had to do with light and particles so small that they were often indistinguishable in their behavior,
and prone to paradox at every turn. A particularly vexing aspect that even Einstein and his colleagues tried to tackle in the 1930s involved two particles that at first collided and then traveled at sublight speeds in opposite directions. Would observation of one have an instantaneous effect on the other? Did the two particles, having once collided, now exist ever after in some sort of mysterious relationship or field? A bond between them so potent that just to measure one was to influence the other, regardless of how far away. Einstein wondered about this in a thought experiment. Did interaction of subatomic particles tie their futures together forever, even if one stayed on Earth and the other wound up beyond Pluto? Real experiments in the 1960s and after suggested that's just what was happening, at least in local areas, and this supported Heisenberg's and Bohr's classic Copenhagen interpretation that quantum mechanics was some kind of mind-over-matter deal, that just looking at a quantum or tiny particle, maybe even thinking about it, could affect not only it, but related particles. Einstein would have preferred to find another cause, non-mental, for such phenomena. But that could lead to an interpretation of quantum mechanics as faster-than-light action. The particle on Earth somehow sent an instant signal to the particle in space, which, of course, ran counter to Einstein's relativity theories. Well, I guess that would fill more than your average postcard— the truth is, blood and semen and DNA evidence were a lot easier to make sense of than quantum mechanics, which was one reason that kind of esoteric science was just a hobby with me. Of course, one way that QM had it over forensics is that it rarely had to do with dead bodies. But Lauren Goldring was wanting to tell me that maybe it did, in at least one case. Her husband's. Ian was part of a small group of physicists working to demonstrate that QM was evidence of faster-than-light travel, time travel. Maybe both, she said. Not a product of the mind? I asked. No, she said. Not as in the traditional interpretation. But doesn't faster-than-light travel contradict Einstein? I asked. Not necessarily, Lauren said. It seems to contradict the simplest interpretations, but there may be some loopholes. Go on, I said. Well, there's a lot of disagreement even among the small group of people Ian was working with. Some think the data supports both faster-than-light and time travel. Others are sure that time travel is impossible, even though you're not saying that you think some crazy envious scientist killed him, I asked. No, Lauren said. It's much deeper than that. A favorite phrase of hers. I don't understand, I said. Well, Stephen Hawking, for one, says that although the equations suggest that time travel might be possible on the quantum level, the universe wouldn't let this happen. She paused and looked at me. You've heard about Hawking's work in this area? I know about Hawking in general, I said. I'm not that much of an amateur, but not about his work in time travel. You're very unusual for a forensic scientist, she said, with an admiring edge I very much liked. Anyway, Hawking thinks that whatever quantum mechanics may permit, the universe just won't allow time travel, 
because the level of paradox time travel would create would just unravel the whole universe. You mean like if I could get a message back to JFK that he would be killed, and he believed me and acted upon that information and didn't go to Dallas and wasn't killed, this would create a world in which I would grow up with no knowledge that JFK had ever been killed, which would mean I would have no motive to send the message that saved JFK. But if I didn't send that message, then JFK would be killed. That's it, Lauren said. Except on the quantum level, you might achieve that paradox by sending back information just a few seconds in time. Say, in the form of a command that would shut down the generating circuit and prevent the information from being sent in the first place. I see, I said. And well, because things like that, if they could happen, if they happened all the time, would lead to a constantly remade inside-out self-effacing universe, Hawking promulgated his chronology protection conjecture. The universe protects the existing timeline, whatever the theoretical possibilities of time travel. How does your husband fit into this? I asked. He was working on a device, an experiment, to disprove Hawking's conjecture, she said. He was trying to create a local wormhole with temporal effects. And you think he somehow disappeared into this? Jeez, this was beginning to sound like a bad episode of Star Trek. But she seemed rational. Everything she'd outlined made sense, and something in her inner manner continued to compel my attention. I don't know. She looked like she was close to tears again. All right, I said. Here's what I think we should do. I'm going to call in Ian's disappearance to a friend in the department. He's a precinct captain, and he'll take this seriously. He'll contact all the airports, get Ian's picture out to cops on the beat. But I don't think... I know, I said. You've got a gut feeling that something more profound is going on. And maybe you're right. But we've got to cover all the bases. Okay, she said quietly, and I noticed that her lips were quivering again. Will you be okay tonight? I'll get back to you tomorrow morning. I took her hand. I guess so, she said huskily and squeezed my hand. I didn't feel like letting go, but I did. The news the next morning was terrible. I don't care what the shrinks say. Flat-out confirmed death is always worse than ambiguous, unresolved disappearance. I couldn't bring myself to just call her on the phone. I drove to her home, hoping she was in. She opened the door. I tried to keep a calm face, but I'm not that good of an actor. She understood immediately. Oh, no, she cried out. She staggered and collapsed in my arms. Please, no. I'm sorry. I said, and touched her hair. I felt like kissing her forehead, but didn't. I hardly knew her. Yet I felt very close to her, a part of her world. They found him a few hours ago near Columbia University. Looks like another stupid, senseless, goddamned, random drive-by shooting. That's the kind of world we live in. I didn't know whether this would in any way lessen her pain. At least his death had nothing to do with his work. No, not random, she said, sobbing. Not random. Okay, I said. You need to rest. 
I'm going to call someone over here to give you a sedative. I'll stay with you till then. The medic was over in fifteen minutes. He gave her a shot, and she was asleep a few minutes later. Not random. Not random, she mumbled. I called the captain and asked if he could send a uniform over to stay with Lauren for the afternoon. He wasn't happy. His people were overworked, like everyone, but he owed me. Many's the time I'd saved his butt with some piece of evidence I'd uncovered in the back of an orifice. I dropped by the autopsy. Nothing unusual there. Three bullets from a cheap punk's gun. One shattered the heart, did all the damage. Ian Goldring's dead. No sign of radiation damage, no strange chemistry in the body, no possible connection that I could see to anything Lauren had told me. Still, the coroner was a friend. I explained to him that the victim was the husband of a friend and asked if he could run any and every conceivable test at his disposal to determine if there was anything different about this corpse. He said sure. I knew he wouldn't find anything, though. I went back to my office. I thought of calling Lauren and telling her about the autopsy, but she'd be better off if I let her rest. I was tired of looking at dead bodies. I turned on my computer and looked at its screen instead. I was on a few physics lists on the internet. I logged on and did some reading about Hawking and his chronology protection conjecture. Lady physicist on the phone for you again, Carl called out. It was late afternoon already. I logged off and rubbed my eyes. Hi, Lauren said. You okay? I asked. Yeah, she said. I just got off the phone with one of the other researchers in Ian's group, and I think I've got part of this figured out. She sounded less tentative than yesterday, like she was indeed more on top of what was actually going on, or thought she was but more worried. I started to tell her, gently as I could, about the autopsy. Doesn't matter, she interrupted me. I mean, I don't think the way that Ian was killed has any relevance to this. It's the fact that he was killed that counts. The reason he was killed. The reason. Everyone wants reasons in this irrational society. Science in the laboratory deals with reason. In the outside world, you're lucky if you can find a reason. I know it's painful, I said. But Ian's death had no reason. His killer was likely just a high-flying kid with a gun. Happens all the time. Ian was just in the wrong place. A random victim in the murder lottery. No, not random, Lauren said. She'd said the same thing this morning. I could hear her starting to sob again. Look, Phil, she continued, I really think I'm close to understanding this. I'm going to make a few more calls. I, uh, we hardly know each other, but I feel good talking this out with you. Our conversation last night helped me a lot. Can I call you back in an hour, or maybe, I don't know, if you're not busy tonight, could you come over again? She didn't have to ask twice. I'll see you at seven. I'll also bring some food in case you're hungry. You have to eat. I knew even before I drove up that something was wrong. 
I guess my eyes, after all these years of looking around crime scenes, are especially sensitive to the weak flicker of police lights on the evening sky at a distance. The flicker still turns my stomach. What's going on here? I got out of my car, Chinese food in hand, and asked the uniform. Who the hell are you? He replied. I fumbled for my ID. He's okay. Janny Murphy, the uniform who'd come to stay with Lauren in the afternoon, walked over. He's forensics. The food dropped from my hand when I saw the expression on her face. Brown mushu pork juice dribbled down the driveway. It's crazy, Janny said. Doc says it's less than one in ten thousand. Some rare allergy to the shot the medic gave her. It wasn't his fault. It somehow brings out an asthma attack hours later. Fifty percent fatality. And Lauren, Dr. Goldring, was in the unlucky part of the curve. Janny nodded. I don't believe this, I said, shaking my head. I know, Janny said. Hell of a coincidence. Physicist and his wife, also a physicist, both dying like that. Maybe it's not a coincidence, I said. What do you mean? Janny said. I don't know what I mean, I said. Is Lauren, is the body still here? I'd like to have a look at her. Help yourself. Janny gestured inside the house. I can't say Lauren looked at peace in death. I could almost see her lips still quivering, straining to tell me something, though they were as sealed as the deadest night now. I had an urge again to kiss her face. I'd known her all of two days, wanted as many times to kiss her. I was aware of Janny standing beside me. I'm going home now, I said. Sure, Janny said. The captain says he'd like to talk to you tomorrow morning, just to wrap this whole mess up. Bad karma. Yeah, karma. Like in Fritz Capra's Tao of Physics. Like in two entities crossing each other's paths and then evermore touching each other's destinies. Like me and this soul with the soft, still lips. Except I had no power to influence Lauren to make things better for her anymore. And the truth is, I hadn't done much for her when she was alive. I was awake all night. I logged on to a few more fringy physics lists with my computer and did more reading. Finally, it was light outside. I thought about calling Stephen Hawking. He was where? California? Cambridge, England? I wasn't sure. I knew he'd be able to talk to me if I could reach him. I'd seen a video of him talking through a special device. But he'd probably think I was crazy when I told him what I had to say. So I called Jack Donovan instead. He was another friend who owed me. I had lots of friends like that in the city. Jack was a science reporter for Newsday, and I'd come through for him with off-the-record background on murder investigations in my bailiwick lots of times. I hoped he'd come through for me now. I was starting to get worried. He had lots of connections in the field. He could talk to scientists who'd shy away from me, my being in the department and all. It was seven in the morning. I expected to get his answering machine, but I got him. I told him my story. 
Okay, he said. Why don't you go see the captain at the precinct and then come over to see me? I'll do some checking around in the meantime. I did what Jack said. I kept strictly to the facts with the captain. No suppositions, no chronological or any other protection schemes. And he took it all in with his customary frown. Damn shame, he muttered. Nice lady like that. They ought to take that sedative off the market. Damn drug companies are too greedy. Right, I said. You look exhausted, he said. You ought to take the rest of the day off. More or less what I had in mind, I said, and left for Jack's. I thought my office was high-tech, but Jack's Hempstead newsroom looked like something well into the next century. Computer screens everywhere you looked, sounds of modems chirping on and off like the patter of tiny raindrops. Jack looked concerned. You're not going to like this, he said. What else is new, I said. Try me. Well, you were right about my having better entree to these physicists than you. I did a lot of checking, Jack said. There were six people working actively in conjunction with Ian on this project. A few more, of course, if you take into account the usual complement of graduate student assistants. But outside of that, the project was sealed up pretty tightly. Not by the government or any agency, but by the researchers themselves. Sometimes they do that when the research gets really fringy. Like they don't want anyone to know what they're really doing until they're sure they have a reliable effect. You wouldn't believe some of the wild things people have been getting into in the past few years. Especially the physicists, now that they have the internet to yammer at each other. I'm tired, Jack. Please get to the point. Well, four of the seven, that includes Ian Goldring, are now dead. One had a heart attack the day after his doctor told him his cholesterol was in the bottom ten percent. I guess that's not so strange. Another fell off his roof, he was cleaning out his gutters, and severed his carotid artery on a sharp piece of flagstone that was sticking up on his walk. He bled to death before anyone found him. Another was struck by a car, DOA. And then there's Ian. I could write a story on this even without your conjecture. Please don't, I said. It's a weird situation, all right, four out of seven dying like that. And also Goldring's wife. How are the spouses of the other fatalities? I asked. All okay, Jack said, but none are physicists. None knew anything at all about their husband's work. All of the dead were men. Lauren Goldring is the only one who had any idea what her husband was up to. She wasn't sure, I said. But I think she figured it out just before she died. Maybe they all picked up some virus at a conference they attended, something which threw off their sense of balance, caused their heart rate to speed up. Sam Abramson, Jack's editor, strolled by and jumped in. Clearly, he'd been listening on the periphery of our conversation. That could explain the two accidents and the heart attack, he added. Maybe even the sedative death. But not the drive-by shooting of Goldring, I said. No, Abramson admitted. But it could be an interesting story anyway. Think about it, he said to Jack.
and strolled away. I looked at Jack. Please, I'm begging you, if I'm right. It's likely something completely different, Jack said. Some completely different hidden variable. Hidden variables. I'd been reading about them all night. What about the other three? Have you been able to get in touch with them? I asked. Nope, Jack said. Hayes and Strauss refused to talk to me about it. Both had their secretaries tell me they were aware of some of the deaths, had decided not to do any more work on the local wormhole project, had no plans to publish what they'd already done, didn't want to talk to me about it or hear from me again. Each claimed to be involved now in something completely different. Does that sound to you like the usual behavior of research scientists? I asked. No, Jack said. The ones I know eat up publicity, and they'd hang on to a project like this for decades, like a dog worrying a bone. I nodded. And the third physicist? Fenwick? She's in a small plane somewhere in the outback of Australia. I couldn't reach her at all. Call me immediately if you hear the plane crashes, I said. I really meant when, not if, but I didn't want Jack to think I was even more far gone than I was. Please try to hold off on any story for now, I said, and made to leave. I'll do what I can, Jack said. Try to get some rest. I think there's something going on here, all right, but not what you think. The drive back to Westchester was harrowing. Two cars nearly sideswiped me, and one big-ass truck stopped so suddenly in front of me that I had all I could do to swerve out of crashing into it and becoming an instant Long Island Expressway pancake. Let's say the QM time travel people were right. Particles are able to influence each other traveling away from each other at huge distances because they're actually traveling back in time to an earlier position when they were in immediate physical contact. So time travel on the quantum level is possible, technically. But let's say Hawking was also right. The universe can't allow time travel, for to do so would unravel its very being. So it protects itself from dissemination of information backwards in time. That wouldn't be so crazy. People are saying the universe can be considered one huge organism, a Gaia writ large. Makes sense, then, that this organism, like all other organisms, would have tendencies to act on behalf of its own survival, would act to prevent its dissolution via time travel. But how would such a protection express itself? A physicist figures out a way of creating a local wormhole that can send some information back in time, back to his earlier self and equipment, in some non-blatantly paradoxical way. It doesn't shut off the circuit that sent it. So this information is in fact sent and in fact received by the scientist. But the universe can't allow that information transfer to stand. So what happens? Hawking says that the universe's first line of defense is to create energy disturbances severe enough at the mouths of the wormhole to destroy it and its time-channeling ability. Okay. But let's say the physicist is smart, or lucky enough to create a wormhole that can withstand these self-disruptive forces. What does the universe do then? Maybe it makes the scientist forget this information, 
Maybe causes a minor stroke in the scientist's brain. Maybe causes the equipment to irreparably break down. Maybe the lucky physicist is really unlucky. Maybe this already happened lots of times. But what happens when a group of scientists around the world who achieve this time travel transfer reach a critical mass, a mass that will soon publish its findings and make them known irrevocably to the world? Jeez! I jammed the heel of my hand into my car horn and swerved. The damn Volkswagen driver must be drunk out of his mind. So what happens when this group of scientists gets information from its own future? has proof of time travel, information that can't be. The universe regulates itself, polices its timeline in a more drastic way. All existence is equilibrium. A stronger threat to existence evokes a stronger reaction. A freak fatal accident. A sudden massive heart attack. Another no-motive drive-by shooting that the universe already dishes out to all too many people in this hapless world of ours. Except in this case, the universe's motive is quite clear and strong. It must protect its chronology, conserve its current existence. Maybe this already happened, too. How many physicists on the cutting edges of this science died too young in recent years? Jeez, it was a story for Jack, all right. But why Lauren? Why did she have to die? Maybe because the universe's protection level went beyond just those who received illicit future information. Maybe it extended to those who understood just what it was doing. Just whamp! Something big had smashed into the rear of my car, and I was skidding way out of control towards the edge of the Throg's Neck Bridge, towards where some workers had removed the barriers to fix some corrosion or something. I was strangely calm above it all. I told myself to go easy on the brakes, but my leg clamped down anyway and my speed increased. I wrenched my wheel around, but all that did was spin me into a backward skid off the bridge. My car sailed way the hell out over the black and blue Long Island Sound. The way down took a long time. They'd say I was overwrought, overtired, that I lost control. But I knew the truth knew exactly why this was happening. I knew too much, just like Lauren. Or maybe there was a way out, a weird little corner of my brain piped up. Maybe I didn't know the truth. Maybe I was wrong. Maybe if I could convince myself of that, the universe wouldn't have to protect itself from me. Maybe it would give me a second chance. My car hit the water. I was still alive. I was a pretty fair swimmer. If only I could force myself never to think of certain things, maybe I had a shot. Maybe the deaths of the physicists were coincidental after all. I lost consciousness thinking, no, I couldn't just forget what I already knew so well. How could I will myself not to think of that very thing I was trying to will myself not to think about? that blared in my mind now like a broken car horn. But if I died, what I knew wouldn't matter anyway. I awoke fighting sheets of water. No, these were too white. Maybe hospital sheets. Yeah, white hospital sheets. 
They smelled like that, too. I opened my eyes. Hospital rooms were hell. I knew better than most the truth of that. But this was just a hospital room. I was sure of that. I was alive. And I remembered everything. With a spasm that both energized and frightened me, I realized that I recalled everything I'd been thinking about the universe and its protective clutch. But I was still alive. So maybe my reasoning was not completely right. Dr. D'Amato, a female voice, soft but very much in command, said to me, Good to see you awake. Good to be awake, Nurse uh, Johnson. I squinted at her name tag, then her face. Um, what's my situation? How long have I been here? She looked at the chart next to my bed. Just a day and a half, she said. They fished you out of the sound. You were suffering from shock. Here. She gave me a cup of water. Now that you're awake, you can take these orally. She gave me three pills and turned off the intravenous that I'd just realized was attached to me. She disconnected the tubing from my vein. I held the pills in my hand. I thought about the universe again. I envisioned it, rightly or wrongly, as a personal antagonist now. Let's say I was right about the reach of its chronology protection after all. Let's say it had spared me in the water because I was on the verge of willing myself to forget. Let's say it had allowed me to get medicine and nutrition intravenously while I was unconscious because while I was unconscious I posed no threat. But let's say now that I was awake and remembered it would... Dr. D'Amato, are you falling back asleep on me? She smiled. Come on now, be a good boy and take your pills. They burned in my palm. Maybe they were poison. Maybe something I had a lethal allergy to, like Lauren. No, I said. I'm okay now, really. I don't need them. I put the pills on the table and swung my legs out of bed. I don't believe this, Johnson said. It's true. You doctors make the worst god-awful patients. You just stay put now, hear me? She gave me a look of exasperation and stalked out the door, likely to get the resident on duty, or, who knew, security. I looked around for my clothes. They were on a chair, a dried-out crumpled mess. They stank of oil and salt water. At least my wallet was still inside my jacket pocket, money damp but intact. Good to see there was still some honesty left in this town. I dressed quickly and opened the door. The corridor was clear. God damn it, I could leave if I wanted to. I was a patient, not a prisoner. At least insofar as the hospital was concerned. As for the larger realm of being, I couldn't say anymore. I took a cab straight home. The most important new piece of evidence to this whole case, as well as to me personally, was that I was alive. This meant that my assessment of the universe's vindictiveness was missing something. Or maybe the universe was just a less effective assassin of forensic scientists than quantum physicists and their knowing wives. I called Jack to see if there was anything new. Oh, just a second, please, the Newsday receptionist said. 
I didn't like the tone of her voice. Hello, can I help you? This was a man's voice, but not Jack's. He sounded familiar, but I couldn't place him. Yes, I'm Dr. Phil D'Amato of NYPD Forensics, calling Jack Donovan. Silence. Then, Hello, Phil. I'm Sam Abramson. You still in the hospital? Right, Abramson. That was the voice. No, I'm out. Where's Jack? Abramson cleared his throat. <clears throat> he was killed with Dave Strauss this morning. He'd talked Strauss into going public with this. Strauss supported your story. He'd picked Strauss up at a summer cottage in Ellenville. Strauss had been hiding out there and was driving him back to the city. They got blown off a small bridge. Freak accident. No freaking accident, I said. You know that as well as I do. Another particle who danced this sick quantum twist with me. Another particle dead. But this one was completely my fault. I'd brought Jack into this. I don't know what I know, Abramson said. Except that at this point, the story's on hold until we find out more. I was glad to hear he sounded scared. That's a good idea, I said. I'll be back to you. Take care of yourself, Abramson said. God knows what that subatomic radiation can do to the body and mind. Or maybe it's all just coincidence. God only knows. Take care of yourself. Right. Subatomic radiation. Abramson's latest culprit. First it was a virus, now it was radiation. I'd said the same stupid thing to Lauren, hadn't I? People like to latch on to something they know when faced with something they don't know. Especially something that kills some physicists here, a reporter there, who knew who else. But radiation had nothing to do with this. Stopping it would take a lot more than lead shields. I tracked down Richard Hayes. I was beginning to get a further inkling of what might be going on, and I needed to talk it out with one of the principals, one of the last remaining principals. It could save both our lives. I used my NYPD clout to intimidate enough secretaries and assistants to get directly through to him. Look, I don't care if you're the bleeding head of the FBI, he said. He was British. I'm going to talk to you about this just once, now and then never again. Thank you, Doctor. So, please tell me what you think is happening here. Then I'll tell you what I know, or think I know. What's happening is this, Hayes said. I was working on a project with my colleagues, that's true. But I came to realize the project was a dead end, that the phenomena we were investigating weren't real. So I ceased my involvement in that research. I have no intention of ever picking up that research again, of ever publishing about it or even talking about it except to indicate that it was a waste of time. I'd strongly advise you to do the same. I had no idea how he talked ordinarily, but his words on the phone sounded like each had been chosen with the utmost care. 
Why do I feel like you're reading from a script, Dr. Hayes? I assure you, everything I'm saying is real, as you no doubt already have evidence of yourself, Hayes said. Now you look. I raised my voice. You can't just sweep this under the rug. If the universe is at work here in some way, you think you can just avoid it by pretending you don't know about it? The universe would know about your pretense, too. It's, after all, still part of the universe. And word of this will get out anyway. Someone will sooner or later publish something. If you want to live, you've got to face this and find out what's really happening here and... I believe you are seriously mistaken, my friend. And that, I'm afraid, concludes our interview, now and forever. He hung up. I held on to the disconnected phone, which beeped like a seal, for a long time. I realized that the left side of my body hurt, from my chest up through my shoulder and down my arm. The pain had come on, I thought, at the end of my futile lecture to Hayes, right when I'd talked about publishing. Maybe publishing was the key. Maybe talk about dissemination of this information, as opposed to just thinking about it, is what triggered the universe's backlash. But I was also sure I was right in what I'd said to Hayes about the need to confront this, about not running away. I put the phone back in its receiver and lay down. I was bone tired. Maybe I was getting a heart attack. Maybe I wasn't. Maybe I was still in shock from my dip in the sound. I couldn't fight this all on my own much longer. The phone rang. I fumbled with the receiver. How long had I been sleeping? Hello? Dr. Tomato. A female voice. Maybe Lauren's, maybe Nurse Johnson's. No, someone else. Yes? I'm Jennifer Fenwick. 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 Yes, Jennifer Fenwick. The last quantum physicist on this project. I'd wheedled her number from Abraham's secretary and left a message for her in Australia. The girl at the hotel wasn't sure if she'd already left. Dr. Fenwick, I'm glad you called. I, um, had some ideas I wanted to talk to you about. Regarding the quantum signaling project? I wasn't sure how much she knew and didn't want to scare her off. She laughed, oddly. <laughs> well, I'm open for ideas. I'll take help wherever I can get it. I'm the only damn person left alive in our research group. Only person? So she knew, apparently more than I. I looked at the clock. It was tomorrow morning already. I'd slept right through the afternoon and night. Good thing I'd called my office and gotten the week off, the absurd part of me that kept track of such trivia noted. Richard Hayes committed suicide last night, Fenwick's voice cracked. He left a note saying he couldn't pull it off any longer, couldn't surmount the paradox of deliberately not thinking of something, couldn't overcome his lifelong urge as a scientist to tell the world what he'd discovered. He'd prepared a paper for publication, begged his wife to have it published posthumously if he didn't make it. I spoke to her this morning. I told her to destroy it, and the note, too. 
Fortunately for her, she had no idea what the paper was about. She's a simple woman. Richard didn't marry her for her brains. I see, I said slowly. Where are you now? I'm in New York, she said. I wanted to come home. I didn't want to die in Australia. Look, you're still alive, I said. That means you've still got a chance. How about meeting me for lunch? I looked at the clock again. In about an hour. The Trattoria Il Bambino on 12th Street in the village is good. As far as I know, no one there has died from the food as yet. How I could bring myself to make a crack like that at a time like this, I didn't know. Okay, Fenwick said. She was waiting for me when I arrived. On the way down, I'd fantasized that she'd look just like Lauren. But in fact, she looked a little older and wiser, and even more frightened. All right, I said after we'd ordered and gotten rid of the waiter. Here's what I have in mind. You tell me, as a physicist, where this might not add up. First, everyone who's attempted to publish something about your work has died. Jennifer nodded. I spoke to Lauren Goldring the afternoon she died. She told me she was going to the press. I sighed. I didn't know that, but it supports my point. In fact, the two times I even toyed with going public about this, I had fleeting interviews with death. The first time in the water, the second with some sort of pre-heart attack, I'm sure. Jennifer nodded again. The same for me. Wheeler wrote about cosmic censorship. Maybe he was on the same thing as Hawking. All right. So what does that tell us? I said. Even thinking about publishing this is dangerous, but apparently it's not a capital offense. Knowing about this is in itself not fatal. We're still alive. It's as if the universe allows private crackpot knowledge in this area, because no one takes crackpots seriously, even scientific ones. It's the danger of public dissemination that draws the response, the threat of an objectively accepted scientific theory. Our private knowledge isn't the real problem here. Communication is. The definite intention to publish. That's what kills you. Yeah, cosmic censorship is a good way of putting it. Okay, Jennifer said. Okay, I said. But it's also clear that we can't just ignore this, can't expect to suppress it in our minds. Not having any particular plan to publish won't be enough to save us, not in the long run. Sooner or later, after a dark, silent night, we'd get the urge to shout it out. It's human nature. It's inside of us. Hayes' suicide proves it. His note spells it out. You can't just not think of something. You can't just will an idea into oblivion. It's self-defeating. It makes you want to get up on the rooftop and scream it to the world even more, like a repressed love. Agreed, Jennifer said. So what do we do then? Well, we can't go public with this story. And we can't will ourselves to forget it. But maybe there's a third way. Here's what I was thinking. I can tell you, in strict confidence, that we sometimes do this in forensics. I lowered my voice. 
Let's say we have someone who was killed in a certain way, but we don't want the murderer to know that we know how the murder took place. We just deliberately, at first, publicly interpret the evidence in a different way. After all, there's usually more than one trauma that can result in a given fatal injury to the body, more than one plausible explanation of how someone was killed. Slipped and hit your head on a rock? Or someone hit you in the head with a rock? Sometimes there's not much difference between the results of the two. The universe is murderous, all right. I can see that. But I don't see how what you're saying would work in our situation, Jennifer said. Well, you tell me, I said. Your group thinks it built a wormhole that allows signaling through time. But couldn't you find another phenomenon to attribute those effects to? After all, we only have time travel on the brain because of H.G. Wells and his literary offspring. Let's say Wells had never written The Time Machine. Let's say science fiction had taken a different turn. Then your group would likely have come up with another explanation for your findings. And you can do this now anyway. I took a sip of wine and realized I felt pretty good. You can publish an article on your work and attribute your findings to something other than time travel. Indicate there's some sort of other physical effect. Come up with the equivalent of a false phlogiston theory, an attractive bogus conception for this tiny sliver of subatomic phenomena to account for the time travel effects. The truth is, few, if any, serious scientists actually believe that time travel is possible anyway, right? Most think it's just science fiction, nothing else. Who would have reason to suspect a time travel effect here unless you specifically called attention to it? Jennifer considered. The graduate research assistants worked only on the data acquisition level. Only the project principals, the seven of us. She caught her breath, winced. Only the seven of us knew this was about time travel. No one else. Ours were supposedly the best minds in this area. A lot of good it did us. I know. I tried to be as reassuring as I could. But then, without that time travel label, all you've got is another of a hundred little experiments in this area per year. Jeez, I checked the literature. There are a lot more than that. And your study would likely get lost in the wash. That should shut the universe up. That should keep it safe from time travel, send the scientific community off on the wrong track in a different direction, maybe not send them off in any direction at all. Could you do that? Jennifer sipped her wine slowly. Her glass was shaking. Her lips clung to the rim. She was no doubt thinking that her life depended on what she decided to do now. She was probably right. Mine too. Exotic matter is what makes the effect possible, she said at last. Exotic matter keeps the wormhole open long enough. No one knows much about how it works. In fact, as far as I know, our group created this kind of exotic matter, in which weak forces are suspended, for the first time in our project. I guess I could make a case that a peculiar property of this exotic matter is that it creates effects that mimic time travel in artificial wormholes, I could make a persuasive argument that we didn't really see time travel through that wormhole at all. What we have instead 
is a reversal of processes to earlier stages when they come in contact with our exotic matter. No signaling from the future. You know, we thought the glass was half full, but it was really half empty. No, I said. That's still not going far enough. You've got to be more daring in your deception. Come up with something that doesn't invoke time travel at all, even in the negative. Publishing a paper with results that are explicitly said not to demonstrate time travel is akin to someone the police never heard of coming into the station and saying he didn't do it. That only arouses our suspicion. I'm sorry to be so blunt, Jennifer, but you've got to do more. Can't you come up with some effects of exotic matter that have nothing to do with time travel at all? She drained her wine glass and put it down, neither half full nor half empty. Completely empty. This goes against everything in my life and training as a scientist, she said. I'm supposed to pursue the truth, wherever it takes me. Right, I said. And how much truth will you be able to pursue when you're like Hayes and Strauss and the others? Einstein said the universe wasn't malicious, she said. This is unbelievable. Maybe Einstein was saying the glass was half empty when he knew it was half full. Maybe he knew just what he was doing. Knew which side his bread was buttered on. Maybe he wanted to live past middle age. God almighty! She slammed her hand on the table. Glasses rattled. Couldn't I just swear before you and the universe never to publish anything about this? Wouldn't that be enough? Maybe, maybe not, I said. From the universe's point of view, you're publishing a paper that explicitly attributes the effects to something other than time travel seems much safer, to you as well as the universe. Let's say you change your mind years from now and try to publish a paper that says you succeeded with time travel after all. You'd already be on record in the literature as attributing those effects to something else. You'd be much less likely to be believed then. Safer for the universe? Safer for you. A paper with a false lead is not only our best bet now. It's an insurance policy for our future. Jennifer nodded. Very slowly. I guess I could come up with something. Some phenomenon unrelated to time travel, unsuggestive of it. The connection of quantum effects to human thought has always had great appeal, and even though I personally never saw much more than wishful thinking in that direction. That's better, I said quietly. But how can we be sure no one else will want to look into these effects? Jennifer asked. I shrugged. Guarantees of anything are beyond us in this situation. The best we can hope for are probabilities. That's how the QM realm operates anyway, isn't it? Likelihoods of our success? Statistics in favor of our survival? As for your effects, well, effects don't have much impact outside of a supportive context of theory. Psalm 51 says, Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. The penicillin mold was first identified on a piece of decayed hyssop by a Swedish chemist. But none of this led to antibiotics until spores from a mold landed in Fleming's Petri dish, and he placed them in the right scientific perspective. 
Scientists thought they had evidence of spontaneous generation of maggots in old meat until they learned how maggots make love. Astronomers saw lots of evidence for a luminiferous ether until Michelson Morley decisively proved that wrong. You're working on the cutting edge of physics with your wormholes. No one knows what to expect. You said it yourself. Yours were the best minds in this area. You can create the context. No one's left to contradict you. Let's face it, if you word your paper properly, it will likely go unnoticed. But if not, it will point people in the wrong direction. And once pointed that way, away from time travel, the world could take years, decades, longer to look at time travel as a real scientific possibility again. The history of science is filled with wrong, glittering paths, tenaciously taken and defended. That's the path of life for us. I'm not happy about it, but there it is. Our food arrived. Jennifer looked away from me and down at her veal. I hadn't completely won her over yet, but she'd stopped objecting. I understood how she felt. To theoretical scientists, pursuit of truth was sometimes more important than life itself. Maybe that's why I went into flesh-and-blood forensics. I pushed on. The truth is, we've all been getting along quite well without time travel anyway. It could wreak far more havoc in everyone's lives than nuclear weapons ever did. The universe may not be wrong here. She looked up at me. It's all up to you now, I said. I'm not a physicist. I can't pull this off. I can take care of the general media, but not the scientific journals. I thought about Abramson at Newsday. He hadn't a clue which way was up in this thing. He just as soon believed this nightmare was all coincidence, the ever-popular placeholder for things people didn't want to understand. I could easily pitch it to him in that way. She gave me a weak smile. Okay, I'll try it. I'll write the article with the mental spin on the exotic effects. Physics Review D was given some general info that we were doing something on exotic matter and is waiting for our report. It'll have maximum impact on other physicists there. The human mind and control of matter will be catnip for a lot of them anyway. Good. I smiled back. I knew she meant it. I knew because I suddenly felt very hungry and dug into my own veal with a zest I hadn't felt for anything in a while. It tasted great. Two particles of humanity had connected again. Maybe this time the relationship would go somewhere. It occurred to me, as I took Jennifer's hand and squeezed it with relief, that maybe this was just what the universe had wanted all along. As they say in the department, an ongoing string of deaths is a poor way to keep a secret. There you go. Big thank you to Paul Everson. Paul, thank you so much. What a cracking story, man. Oh, don't forget, copyright is Paul's. And Michael Narrowmore, what can I say, sir? I owe you a few drinks. I probably owe you the bar for narrating like that. Thank you so much. What a gentleman. What a scholar. Now then, 
our very own Amy H. Sturgis with Looking Back at Genre History, Ims. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history. Right now, on my mind is something that's probably on a lot of your minds as well, and that is Star Wars. I don't know about you, but I have my tickets for The Force Awakens in hand, and I am ready to go. And so, right now, while we are awaiting The Force Awakening, well, I thought it might be a good time to talk about some of the inspirations behind Star Wars. Now, there has been a great deal of literature written about the many inspirations that inform Star Wars, and I don't want to rehash a lot of information that has been mind over and over again. So I thought I would narrow my focus and talk in particular about some of the inspirations behind the Jedi. Now, this does require that I step back a moment and mention that one of the primary inspirations for Star Wars uh, that was involved, in fact, in George Lucas's pitch when he described what he hoped to accomplish if he got to make Star Wars were the Flash Gordon serial films starring Buster Crab as Flash Gordon. And that has been well documented and discussed in a lot of places, so I feel like that's pretty well-known material. Beyond the Flash Gordon films, however, and the comics that inspired them, well, there were other science fiction literary science fiction inspirations, and I'd like to look at those. I should once again back up and mention that the first draft of the synopsis to pitch the movie, not the script itself, but just the overall pitch for the movie, was drawn from the synopsis of Akira Kurosawa's The Hidden Fortress, and essentially the names were changed. It's the same basic idea. So here we're going not to the science fiction background, but in fact to the samurai film background. And certainly Lucas drew a lot from Kurosawa. Hidden Fortress is about a princess on the run, the point-of-view characters are two bickering but good-hearted, humble, common peasants. Uh, Lucas would take those and turn them into R2-D2 and C-3PO. There's a lot of cinematography that Lucas borrows from The Hidden Fortress, uh, including the swipe transitions between scenes. Now, later drafts of his Star Wars idea, and in fact later installments in the Star Wars verse, we'd end up owing much more to other Kurosawa films, such as The Seven Samurai from 1954, which was adapted by John Sturgis, no relation, in 1960, to be the Western called The Magnificent Seven. This story followed the tale of a village of farmers who hire seven ronin, masterless samurai, to combat bandits who plan to return after the harvest to steal all their crops, it's worth pointing out that in the second season of Star Wars The Clone Wars, there's an episode called Bounty Hunters, and that is an extended homage to Kurosawa's Seven Samurai, because in that episode there are three Jedi, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Anakin Skywalker, and Ahsoka Tano, who join forces with four bounty hunters, and three plus four equals seven, to protect local farmers from pirates 
who intend to steal their crops. So that is an episode that nods to the strong influence of Kurosawa's work on Star Wars. But among Star Wars's many deep roots are those that are grounded in the literary science fiction tradition. And the authors that I'm going to talk about represent all different kinds of science fiction. Let's break this down. There is an inspiration from Isaac Asimov's work. Remember, he is one of the big three of the golden age of science fiction, indicative of John W. Campbell's vision of science fiction, that great editor who wanted both good science and good fiction. And Isaac Asimov delivered with what we would consider today to be hard science fiction. Specifically, his Foundation series, which was awarded the best science fiction series of all time, uh, the Hugo for that distinct honor in 1966. At the time of Star Wars, the Foundation series consisted of three books published between 1951 and 1953, although the stories had been published earlier. This is sort of a big picture influence because Asimov's series charts the rise and fall of an empire, very large scale, very long term. And many have seen the thumbprint of the Foundation series there on Star Wars. So that's a sort of hard science fiction connection. Another connection is with pulp space opera, if you will. That is E.E. E. Doc Smith and his Lensman series. A very different kind of science fiction, indicative of an earlier pulp mentality, much more along the lines of the kind of work that Hugo Gernsback, uh, the first great science fiction editor, would publish. It is most like Flash Gordon, but of course it is literary and not comic or film-based. It was originally published in serial form in science fiction pulps and was a runner-up for that very same Hugo Award for Best All-Time Series, uh, the one that was won by the Foundation Series by Isaac Asimov. The series consisted originally of the four novels Galactic Patrol, Grey Lensman, Second Stage Lensman, and Children of the Lens, published between 1937 and 1948 in Astounding Stories, Ultimately, it became six serialized novels, with another one retrofitted and one added. If you watch the first web documentary for Star Wars The Phantom Menace, look at the bookshelves behind George Lucas in his writing room, and you can see E.E. E. Doc Smith's Lensman books there. These novels included all kinds of action sequences we can see clearly in Star Wars. Dogfights, chases, including asteroid fields. The list could go on and on. Here it's appropriate, I think, to quote from an article in Salon in 2002 by Stephen Hart. And in this article, Hart called George Lucas a galactic gas bag for not giving props to the pulp science fiction that got him where he was. And this is what Hart says. Like the Jedi, Lensmen enforce order throughout the galaxy with an arsenal of paranormal powers that render them virtually invincible in combat. Where Jedi pay homage to the Force, Lensmen invoke the cosmic all. 
Lucas's Jedi get their force quotient boosted by microscopic entities called midichlorians, Smith's heroes are turbocharged by lenses, collections of crystalline, semi-sentient life forms attuned to their personalities. An early draft of Star Wars revolved around the search for the Kyber crystal, which sounds an awful lot like one of Smith's lenses. There are even hints that Lucas has worked a Lensman-style breeding program into his saga, judging from the story of Anakin Skywalker's immaculate conception in The Phantom Menace. The scale of the action in the Lensman books is broader than anything in the Lucas universe. Not content with wiping out whole planets, Smith's Lensman detonate entire solar systems without breaking a sweat. The series underwent a successful paperback revival in the early 1970s when Lucas was sweating out the first drafts of Star Wars. Dale Pollock's biography, Skywalking, The Life and Films of George Lucas, puts the Lensman novels at the top of Lucas's pre-Star Wars reading list. End quote. It's probably also worth pointing out that one of the pet terms that comes up again and again in the Lensman series, is coruscant, which means shiny. You pronounce that word spelled the same way in a slightly different pronunciation, and you get Coruscant, the home of the Galactic Republic and the Jedi Temple in the Star Wars universe. Now, I could go on all day long talking about science fiction influences for Star Wars. Trust me, just ask my students. But... I'll end with one of the most important, and in fact it is one of the most important works in science fiction, and that is Dune by Frank Herbert, first published as a novel in 1965, winner of both the Hugo and Nebula Awards, and one of my very favorite science fiction novels. You hear that, Tony? One of these days, my friend, I'm going to get you to read this book. It was hugely popular and had pervaded the public imagination in the late 60s and early 70s. There are a lot of parallels, of course, of the desert planet Arrakis, known as Dune, not unlike Tatooine. In an early draft of the first film, as it sort of began to veer away from Kurosawa's influence, uh, General Skywalker finds a group of rebels and encourages them to fight with him against the Empire. And this is not unlike how Paul Atreides encourages the Fremen to join with him against the Empire. And in this draft, Lucas identifies part of the treasure that the princess has with her as spice, a dead giveaway that he had on the brain the spice that was at the heart of the plot of Dune. There is a prophetic chosen one aspect to Dune, with the Kwisatz Haderach, that we can see later in how Anakin is treated as the one who will bring balance to the Force. Also, in Dune, there's a degree of genetic manipulation involved in trying to produce the Kwisatz Haderach. And there are echoes in this of what we learn in the Star Wars Legends novel, Darth Plagueis, about Darth Plagueis' manipulation of midichlorians to produce, well, quite possibly Anakin himself. And this is alluded to also in the films. There's a lot of world-building similarities, drawing on world cultures like the Bedouins and such. 
But perhaps most interestingly, I think, there is a connection to be made between Frank Herbert's Bene Gesserit order and the Jedi. I'm not the only one to see these parallels. I know that others, such as Michael Kaminsky, have written about this. Think about the Bene Gesserit in Dune, this exclusive sisterhood whose members train themselves physically and mentally through years of conditioning, ultimately to become almost superhuman in their powers and abilities. And outsiders see what they can accomplish and think of them as almost magical. Students in the order who have reached a particular level of ability are called reverend mothers, underscoring the kind of monastic aspect of their order. And outsiders sometimes call them witches because their powers are misunderstood and they are secretive about what they can accomplish. Well, the dots kind of connect themselves. The Jedi live monastic lives of physical and mental conditioning. From the outside, they appear almost magical or superhuman. There's an ongoing question of whose ends they're serving. And a number of scholars have pointed out that the Bene Gesserit technique of Prana Bindu, this denotes incredible control of nerve and muscle, it essentially makes the Bene Gesserits women warriors, that that is most likely the inspiration for what Lucas originally called the Jedi, which was Jedi Bindu. He eventually just shortened that to Jedi. Now, the Jedi part of Jedi Bindu comes from the term Jedi Geki, which is the genre of film, television, and theater, the period drama, if you will, in Japan, that is usually set during the Edo period from 1603 to 1868, which brings us all the way back around full circle here to Kurosawa and his samurai movies. In short, then, you can think of Lucas's original conception of the Jedi as, well, Bene Gesserit samurai. So you have the term for the samurai period drama plus Prana Bindu, you end up with Jedi Bindu. In other words, add Samurai to Bene Gesserit, and you have the Jedi. I have quite a lot more I want to say about the Jedi, but it looks like my time is about up. So let's call this a two-parter, shall we? And when we meet again, I will talk a bit more about the inspirations behind the Jedi. I look forward to joining you again soon for another look back into genre history. Thank you, and may the Force be with you. There you go, Amy. What can I say? A big thank you. Thank you so much. And I just want to give Ames a big virtual hug. Just, she lost a little pet, a little Virginia, the Boston Terrier, Boston Terrier, and blessed little thing, it died last week or a couple of weeks ago. And it cut me up and, you know what I mean, I'm kind of a dog lover and Amy's just been kind of just, oh, what, Amy's so, you know what I mean, we're thinking about you, everyone on, you know, the Starship Super community, it's just a horrible kind of time to go through, you know, especially as well, coming up to Christmas, man, I get I get a card of, and this must be like an American kind of thing, it's like a photograph card, and we don't do them over here, I don't think, and it's always... You know, the picture of Virginia, this 
the dog dressed up as like Sherlock Holmes, man. Honestly. Or Santa Claus. Do you know what I mean? And it's in there with its little squashed face. And you know what I mean? It's just, oh. So Amy, honestly, a big hug. It's, I've talked a couple of times about it. And just, you know what I mean? Just hard, hard, hard. You need to get two now, William. Get two more. Honestly, I'm not joking. Get two more. <laughs> Ames. Big hug. So that is Starships over at 410. Big thank you to everyone who's kind of, you know, helped out there. What a great show. You know, big Jonathan, so much for kind of telling me about the end of the world coming. <laughs> Paul, what a story. Michael, what a narration, man. Oh, Amy, amazing. That is it. What can I say? Don't forget, if you want to, you know, come and work, work for her. Well, for us, should I say, work for work. Come and, you know, pop over to the front of the website and have a chat with Jeremy and he'll put you in the picture. Do sign up to our newsletter. Just come up to the front of the website there. You'll you'll see a link there as well. Like I say, that's going great guns. Do you know what I mean? It, it just, it's just, it's, it's really lovely. Some lovely comments there as well. So I'm pleased with that. And we're actually, you know, making it kind of more fuller newsletter as we go on as well with Craig's help. Marvellous. So that is today's show. Tucked up and into bed. I hope you enjoyed it. Until next week, just like I say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Story this presentation has been brought to you by the district of wonders network dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction you can learn more about the district of wonders and their many literary productions at their website www.districtofwonders.com Thank you for listening.